This is NiceAce Now, your source for real-time and on-demand professional learning designed specifically with the independent school educator in mind. A podcast of interviews, seminars, and conference talks to listen to whenever and wherever you like. Brought to you by the New York State Association of Independent Schools. I'm George Swain. In this keynote address at the Assistant at Division Heads Conference in November of 2017, Dana Boyd examines the evolving nature of social media and the many ways that individuals and groups are shaping how we perceive and interact with the world today. Hi, how is everyone doing today? All right. It's the beginning of the conference, so hopefully you're all excited. Um, and I'm hopefully not going to scare you too badly. Um, so my talk today is a, is a odd trajectory from a lot of the work that I've been doing, but I'm doing it because I actually think it's really important. I've spent the majority of my career studying young people, primarily teenagers, trying to understand how technologies fit into their everyday lives. The kinds of practices that they do with their phones, with all of the social media, and how it actually makes complete sense. Um, and that's part of what I love, is just the logical nature of everyday practices. Um, and so in many of those people are the students that uh, are in your schools. And as was mentioned, I wrote a book about it. But I've also spent a lot of time tracking the things at the margins, the outliers, the folks who aren't necessarily playing by the same rules, the people who are looking at these technologies and seeing an opportunity to cause trouble. And that's part of what I'm going to talk about with you tonight about. I'm going to talk about the things that are not necessarily mainstream, but are having significant power. The kinds of, tool, tech, uh, the kinds of young people who are learning to manipulate the kinds of technologies that were so important to participatory culture. The kinds of things that give people so much power in both good and ugly ways. And I think it's really important to understand what's going on, especially if you're reading the news and trying to make sense of it. In short, I'm going to talk about what we can colloquially call trolls. Right? These are young people, primarily at the start of it all, who saw an opportunity to try to use technology to do different things um, that are actually about disrupt, uh, disturbing or disrupting the kinds of uh, systems that we see. They are also the basis of what is now within media frames, talked about as fake news and talked about as the alt-right, and we're going to get there. And so as much as there's conversations in the Senate uh, about issues that are happening in Russia, a lot of what you need to know comes back to young people. And these aren't just specific young people far off in another corner. They're young people across the entire country. They're the young people in your schools who are participating in these environments because they gain something from it. And I want to talk about what they gain, why they're doing it, and why it matters. All right. So in the mid-2000s, discussions around the internet were focused on how dangerous it was. It was all about how it was going to be the largest threat to young people. Sexual predators were just coming out of the woodwork. That was the major frame. And every news media outlet was panicking about the dangers and risks of the internet for young people. Teenagers found this funny. Not only did they find it funny, they found it really annoying. They thought it was ridiculous that so many people could spend so much time on mainstream media um, talking about the dangers of predators. So they decided that they were going to mess with this. And in particular, they decided they were going to mess with Oprah. Oprah was at the time running a lot of shows talking about these issues. And you may not be able to see this, but on the left is a series of her online bulletin boards. And they decided they were going to start mess putting messages into their online bulletin boards. They set up content all over the web in order to get her to focus on a particular risk to young people around sexual predators. And they succeeded. 
She said live on TV that the greatest threat to young people were a network of online sexual predators that were coordinating around and represented by a teddy bear known as Pedo Bear. And she says live on national TV, he doesn't forgive, he doesn't forget. His group has over 9,000 penises and they're raping children. Now, teenagers laughed. This was great. The number of encoded references here are phenomenal. It's about anonymous. It's about Japanese anime. It was a moment of just getting little memes into the mainstream media. Um, and they thought this was just great to watch what was happening. And they weren't alone. They were trying to find ways to mess with the broader media ecosystem because they thought it was funny. What they were doing, in effect, was hacking the attention economy. I grew up in a world where we were hacking the infrastructure of you know, security apparatus. They saw another opening, which was the attention media. Now part of it is, is that these groups had been coordinating online and most famously through a site called 4chan. Raise your hand if you know what 4chan is. Okay, the rest of you don't look this up, okay? So 4chan was for a long time understood as the underbelly of the internet. It was an online anonymous forum, but it's a very funny one. It was created by a 15-year-old boy in his own home, and he was interested in what his peers were interested in, um, which is to say that he was interested in anime and pornography. So the entire purpose of the site was to share anime and pornography very much anonymously. And so he created this server, um, but then it started getting picked up by all these other people, and he was like, oh gosh, I don't know what to do about this because I'm gonna have to tell my mom, right? Which is always the beginning of a, a dangerous situation. And so he decides to do something very funny. He decides that when content streams off the bottom or when, when it fills up too much um, on the first page, rather than allowing you to go to the second page, he would remove that second page, and any content that would have normally gone to the second page was just deleted. That way his server didn't get too filled, um, and he didn't have to worry about the problems of how he would get more servers in, in past his mom. So what he did um, was create a culture that then people wanted to repost to the top of it. And in reposting to the top of it, you saw the beginning of what we now think of as meme culture. right? Because what people did is they took a particular piece of content and posted it way back up. And a lot of that meme culture was actually entirely funny. It was great to you know, think about lol cats. Of course, we got political in different ways. There are all sorts of strange references. You can't entirely know what's going on. That was part of the fun. Because a lot of what was going on in those environments was actually a way of signaling to each other that you were part of something bigger. But it was also important because it was anonymous. You never knew who was participating. It wasn't pseudonymous. You never knew who was contributing over and over again. You were part of something. And you were part of something that moved in a funny fashion, and you didn't have a lot of control over it. You didn't know who else was part of it. And it created a culture and an ethos that came from online gaming to feel like you could run campaigns or raids. And those campaigns or raids are where we started to see things get much more sophisticated, which is to say that like, the idea of messing with Oprah was an idea of messing with these broader ecosystems. And that was great because they started to see ways of messing with all sorts of different services and tools that were out there. So Time Magazine very pompously said, hey, we can list the 100 most important people, and we can get you, the public, to nominate and vote for them, and this will not go wrong at all. right? And so, of course, a lot of people were like, <laughs> game on. 
on, this is fun. So they start throwing content, you know, trying to mess with this list. And Time Magazine wa waggle their fingers like, we see you. You're not actually going to play us. We may give you one person on this list, but you can't really mess with us entirely. Well, down the left of that list that ended up getting printed says Marble Cake, also the game. Because basically they hadn't just gamed time for the top slot, they had gamed time for the entire slots. Right? They had figured out ways of messing with that system. And they were building on a set of practices that we had already seen. Our beloved uh, Pennsylvania Senator found himself at the wrong end of a lot of these campaigns um, when he decided to compare um, uh, uh, the idea of um, uh, marriage, um, gay marriage, as being equivalent to bestiality or pedophilia. Um, the folks decided that this was something to go after him at, and they what is referred to as Google bomb. So it made it so that whenever you search for his last name, you would get a rather interesting uh, results. Um, so this was just these kinds of games that they were playing at. And as they were playing with these systems, they learned a lot of skills. Skills that we would normally celebrate. These were the skills that are, of course, at the cornerstone of social media marketing. They are the skills that are at the cornerstone of a lot of activism. They are also the skills that are at the center of a lot of manipulation. And a lot of it, of course, is that we get this kind of participatory culture. We get people really involved in a lot of cultural references. Now, this one is a particularly entertaining one, which I'll just decode for you because it's so delightful. On the left, we have Pedo Bear, who we mentioned before, um, sort of complaining to Pepe, um, who is another cultural reference within these environments. Pepe was understood as the representation of all of the feels, right? The idea that people have emotions and are feeling. And so, you know, Pedo Bear is sort of empathizing with. Um, Pepe following the declaration by the ADL and uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign that Pepe represented um, the new form of a hate symbol. And so, of course, the reference here is, you know, tell me it gets better, of course, referencing back to uh, the LGBT campaign. And all of a sudden, you see all of these cultural references moving together. And this is the kind of fan art that, once again, we would celebrate. All right, now let's talk about what that looked like in the election. Because a lot of what we saw in the election, you're going to hear nonstop talk about Russia, but a lot of what we saw in the election was actually campaigns that were coordinated and strategized through a lot of these different networks and groups. Now, to give you a timeline on this, a lot of these groups had been, young people had been participating in this throughout the 2000s. It was primarily young people. It continued to be young people throughout the 2000s, and then it started to take different turns. It started to take a turn that got political with what you will hear of as Big A Anonymous, a turn that got political with WikiLeaks, a turn that got actually quite destructive with something that's referred to as Gamergate, which was the beginning of a hate orientation. But it was also a matter that, you know, about 21 months ago, things that were relatively on key of just like, can we mess with the US election, suddenly tar start involving a group of other people, people who identify with white supremacy and white nationalism, people who identify with forms of conspiracy theories, foreign actors, Hindu nationalists, all sorts of groups start swirling around using the same online fora to participate. And they start running campaigns. And throughout the early part of the presidential election in the United States, most of the campaigns were spectacle. Can we just make this into absolute ridiculousness? What would it look like to create it into something magnificent? But the, cam the campaigns got a lot more sophisticated. And this is the one I'm going to refer to right now, um, because many of them believe themselves to have memed the president into being. And it doesn't matter whether or not they succeeded in memeing the president to be, and they believe that they did. And part of it is understanding what they were doing. So I'm going to talk about Hillary's health. This is probably one of the most interesting ones of them, because in August 2016, a month before Hillary um, uh, is sick and declared sick on 9-11, um, online communities start obsessing over her health. 
And it's an interesting moment as I was watching these communities work around this topic, because it was clear that somebody from the outside was actually shaping this. And that was clear that somebody had access to her medical records, probably illicitly. And so they were talking about her health, and they were talking about what they could do about it. And they were saying, hey, can we run a campaign on it? So all of a sudden, they're making YouTube videos about every time she's coughed, cropping up videos and putting it on YouTube. They're creating fake accounts on Twitter, and they're writing to journalists, is Hillary sick? Is Hillary sick? Is Hillary sick? Trying to trigger them to pay attention to it. They're trying to see how they can spread that frame as they produce content left, right, and center. And of course, she does end up getting sick on 9-11, such that every major newspaper blasts out simultaneously as though this is the most important issue that you've ever found, that she has passed out due to pneumonia. Right? And they, of course, had already seeded that to narrate the idea that part of her illness was because she didn't have stamina. So that frame not only starts to feed into these online fora, it feeds into the narratives of presidential campaigns, the narratives that we heard in the media, and the narratives of the debate. Right? This was a campaign that was not actually even about Hillary. Many of them didn't care about Hillary. They cared about whether or not they could mess with the system. And that's what I want you to understand, because a lot of young people who are participating in these environments are doing it for the lulls. They're doing it just to see that they could. And they felt so empowered at that moment where they felt like they could do something. And we can talk about some of the other attacks if you'd like. But what I want to point out with this is that we have infrastructure within our society that is vulnerable and has these openings right now. One of them is the media. They will cover anything that is newsworthy, even if it's not necessarily healthy for us as a society to cover. And so all it takes is people asking questions. It's not even require fake content. It just requires asking questions. So if you want to understand what that means, two nights ago, when we had to deal with the devastation of a, a young man going and shooting uh, up a church, what happened in these communities instantly, as soon as that occurred, as soon as that was reported, they start creating links in online fora saying, this, you know, this guy this, that's you know, the shooter, it's all because of Antifa. So they start bringing these links, and they start feeding it. And it's, at this point, it's totally insane. But they point it at journalists. And it took all of one hour for Newsweek to report out that there seems to be a connection between Antifa and the shooter. Right? They do this over and over again. So when you start to see these media fall and they use the technologies to get there, we need to understand how, it's, how we've gotten there. All right, I'm going to back us up. I want to look at the roots of why people are doing what they're doing and what's at stake here. What's at stake politically and what's at stake socially that can be used in these forms. So, why are we vulnerable to polarization and manipulation? Why are we vulnerable to fear? We can talk about the psychological aspects of it, but I want to highlight some of the sociological, some of the cultural. We have built a structure that's not just about the media being exploited, but about our social infrastructure being exploited. And part of it is, is that as a country, our social graph, our actual social networks, the people that we know, have been polarized for a long time. But there's been interesting institutions throughout our time to try to bring things together. And I want to talk for a moment about the military. The military actually provided a very important networking service in this country. Because even as people would self-segregate, 18-year-olds would actually be going to the military and actually forced to get to know and spend time with people who were culturally, geographically, politically, ideologically, faith-wise different than one another. They were diverse along many, many axes. And not only did they have to train together, they had to work together to lay down their lives together. 
right? It was a very interesting and important structure in the rebuilding of the country after the Civil War, and it's an even more important part of the country across the 20th century. Because what it meant is that people had these strong networks, these ties across the land in different ways. And what's happened is we've undone a lot of those. Not only has the military declined in the number of people participating in it, the level in which this has actually been a way of onboarding immigrants, the ways in which the, the, the combination of people who are participating in the military are already socially much more um, localized, um, but we're also seeing these structures play out in different ways elsewhere. I keep thinking about this in terms of Facebook. One of the first things that happened in Facebook was when young people, think about the time when Facebook was required or was only for um, uh, colleges. Young people would find out they had gotten admitted to the college and beg for their account, right? So they could get access to Facebook because they'd heard about it, but as high school students, they couldn't access it. And what happened from that early point is they figured out who else was going to be in their dorm or in their community, and they found the people that were like them and begged to get away from their roommates or the people that were different than them. They chose to self-segregate. They used their text messaging devices, uh, their phones, in order to stay connected to people from home rather than being forced to interact with people that are different. So we've actually seen all of these different ways in which people intentionally self-segregate. Now, self-segregation is something that is completely sensible culturally. You, it's much easier to be around people who think like you, who share the values of you, who are entirely uh, part of your worldview. And this isn't just true for young people. This is true, for example, in workforce environments. I love the work of Mazar and Banaji, who found that even though more diverse workplace teams perform better, they perceive themselves to perform worse, and they mark themselves as less happy. Right? That's huge, because that, what that means is that we create these structures in order to self-segregate. And it's not just that we've created them within our broader traditional environments, we've of course created them online. You can connect to anybody around the globe through the internet, but you're not going to. You're going to use it to connect to the people that are like you, and for most people that means their peers. And that's one of the reasons why you pay attention to the peer culture and the factors that's going on there. For the groups that I'm talking about who are at the extreme margins, that's people who actually share their worldview in an egregious way. And of course, when you end up adding that to a, the rise of 24-7 news um, and a, you know, an ecosystem in the news media that's sort of you know, messed by financialization, we end up with a wedge in society, one that can actually be used to do all sorts of polarization, um, often at, you know, in short-term benefit and long-term cost. Right? And that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in technology's role in all of this. Because I used to celebrate just the fact that young people could come together and get to know strangers. It was so important. In the early days of the internet, um, it, for LGBT young people, the internet was more important than anything else because finding other LGBT people would make certain that they would not be dying by suicide. It was critical. And so part of it was we pushed at that and that was really powerful. But what happens when we push it to a more problematic end? So let's talk about another key facet, because I'm going to give you these facets, and then we're going to start to tie them together. And this has to do with the epistemolo uh, epistemologies of how we think about things. Now, we often focus on individuals and their ability to understand information and information intermediaries. And certainly in an education landscape, we tend to help people try to think through this. But predominantly, we focus on ideas of evidence, and I happen to share those views. Um, but one of the things that's at stake right now is what epistemologies are actually working well together and which ones can be used to wedge or fragment. I want to read this quote um, by Cory Doctorow because I think that it's really interesting in understanding some of the fights right now that have been happening around what we know. 
We're not disagreeing about facts. We're disagreeing about epistemology. The establishment version of epistemology is we use evidence to arrive at the truth, vetted by independent verification. But trust us when we tell you it's all been independently verified by people who are properly skeptical and not the bosom buddies of the people they were supposed to be fact-checking. The alternative facts epistemological method goes like this. The independent, the so-called independent experts who were supposed to be verifying the so-called evidence-based truth were actually in bed with the people they were supposed to be fact-checking. In the end, it's all a matter of faith then. You either have faith in their uh, experts being truthful or you have faith in that we are. Ask your gut what feels more truthful. That's huge. Right? Because this is exactly how it can become a wedge. We talk about critical thinking as a way of challenging structures and status, but if you don't have a broader framework, that critical thinking often becomes this way of asking what goes on. Now think about that also in terms of broader conversations about experience as an important way of knowing and way of seeing compared to evidence and evidence-based scientific method-oriented ways of seeing and knowing, or compare that to faith-based views. And you start to see the places where this comes in. So we ask people to be critical thinkers, but we often um, teach, teach them in funny ways around this. And one of the things that I talk about in my book is how often teachers have been, have been asking people to be critical about Wikipedia, but the way that it almost always came out for young people was, I heard Wikipedia is a bad thing, but I'm going to use Google. Right? That's a good thing, right? Uh, okay, so let me explain what that looked like yesterday in Virginia. One of my researchers, Francesca Tapodi, went around and interviewed people about how they got information about the election. And consistently, they had one answer for her. We Googled it. Right? They, they didn't trust fake news, otherwise known as CNN. They trusted the ability to search names. And it wasn't just now, it was actually going back to the primaries, when she realized that at a primary, if you actually have a particularly strong political affiliation, you may not know the different candidates. And they were throwing them into Google and finding whatever came up, which by the way was the news, uh, the, you know, Google news information, it was personalization, but they didn't know that. They just read the headlines. Right? And again, you start to see a vulnerability. So how do we actually use that vulnerability? This is where I love conspiracy theorists. They're fabulous um, as a way of actually seeing how this is opening. Um, the folks who are really focused on the Earth being flat um, are particularly priceless. And so one of the things that they talk about is how they create YouTube channels to get people to critically think. And it's true, if you actually go down these rabbit holes and start looking at the context and conversations around the folks who are focused on the earth being flat, you get an amazing worldview, and you start to being like, huh. And if you don't actually have the physics knowledge or the scientific knowledge to start interrogating the material they put out there, it's really hard to make sense of it. Now look at what that means for RT, and this is hard to read, so I'll read it to you. Just how reliable is the evidence that suggests human activity impacts climate change? The answer isn't always clear cut. It's only possible to make a balanced judgment if you are better informed. By challenging the accepted view, we reveal a side of the news that you wouldn't normally see. Because we believe that the more you question, the more you know. Sounds a lot like a conversation we would typically have around critical thinking. Except that of course this is being used to polarize. Now where does this go at the most extreme? Let's talk about Dylan Roof. One of the heartbreaking things about Dylan Roof is that he actually left a very detailed trail of how he was radicalized. He actually wrote about it in gory detail, and then, of course, it was backed by all of those technical work on the other side. What's interesting about how he came about this process is that it had to do with the Trayvon Martin case. As he said, I kept hearing and seeing the name, and eventually I decided to look him up. 
couldn't figure out who this guy was, and he wanted to figure out what this was about. I read the Wikipedia article, and right away I was unable to understand what the big deal was. It was obvious that Zimmerman was in the right. right? So what was it obvious about that Wikipedia entry? Who had constructed it under what terms? So part of it is, is that at the time he got to it, there was some encoded content in that Wikipedia entry, and he found it. More importantly, this prompted me to type in the words black on white crime into Google. And I've never been the same since that day. The first website I came to was the Council of Conservative Citizens. There were pages upon pages of these brutal black on white murders. I was in disbelief. At this moment, I realized that something was very wrong. How could the news be blowing up the Trayvon Martin case while hundreds of these black on white murders got ignored? You start down those searches, you start asking questions into Google, and some of these pathways will lead you to more and more extreme views. And Dylan Roof is one of those people who went down that path. He started looking and asking questions and content that was structured to appear when he looked for certain kinds of encoded work is exactly what got him there. And he very much explains that this is what got him there, and he very much does not apologize for what he did. So how do we see that being architected for political purposes? Pizzagate looks like a total joke to those who are not part of the online communities. Um, it looks like a total joke to people who are not part of deeply conservative communities. It looks very different when you come from different worldviews. Part of it is to understand that commercial sexual trafficking of minors has been a problem for a very long time and that Religious communities, particularly evangelical communities in, the, in this country, have spent a lot of time invested in trying to help young people who have been sex trafficked. And prior to the internet, the way that that often occurred was through encoded conversations that happened on the phone. And the FBI used to track people who were talking about pizza. Because pizza was the code reference that people would use when they were trying to commercially exploit young people. So take that for a second. John Podesta's emails get hacked, they get put into these online fora, conspiracy theorists start trafficking them, trying to figure out what's going on, trying to make sense of all of this. It's like, this is totally crazy, what's happening? They keep seeing references to a pizza shop, right? Now mind you, this is a group who's already predisposed to believe that Hillary Clinton is only investing in human trafficking work and State Department to cover up the actions of her husband and to cover up the actions of her AIDS husband, right? So they're already predisposed to this. They make this connection, that kind of moment where you're like, oh, there's something here, and it becomes a full-blown conspiracy, something that's completely crazy. But then they throw it to the media, right? And what happens, of course, as this, as this goes on is that they're encouraging people to self-investigate. They want people to look into it, to see if it is real. Hundreds of people show up to that shop in DC. One showed up with a gun. That's why we've heard about it across the liberal environments. But in conservative environments, this was going on, and this was being part of a broader conversation writ large to question, to see doubt. But what was most interesting is, is that every major media felt that they needed to cover it. And what they didn't realize is that they were a pawn in that system. Because the groups that I was tracking were throwing it at the media for one reason. They were throwing at the media for the boomerang effect, which is that when you get a non-trustworthy actor to say something, people who don't believe that non-trustworthy actor negate it. Right? So the result is, is that by saying that there was nothing real about Pizzagate, that this is just a conspiracy from the internet, they convinced more people that they needed to go self-investigate, that there was something real there. Now, 
how did they learn this? They read all of the details of the CDC reports on what happened when the media would cover them, that there's no correlation between autism and vaccination. Right? What happens is that more people in this country believe that it is true. So we can't even cover that. Now part of it is also understanding how people get set up in these moments. And I've been particularly enamored with a, uh, a conversation that is primarily on Fox News, but is seated through a variety of folks, which is to basically give information to journalists every time a teacher is arrested for having sexual misconduct with their students. These are all real cases. There's about 800 of them. And giving them to journalists, they feel like they have to cover the story. It's newsworthy, right? And so journalist after journalist covers it. And it sets in motion a broader idea that when you search for sexual predators, depending on how your personalization work goes, you get teachers. You start to believe that the primary sexual epidemic, uh, primary sexual misconduct behavior is coming from teachers, female teachers. Think about what that means in a conversation around sexual harassment. It's a way of narrating the idea that this is not really about men. This is really about women. And schools are really not a safe place to be. Right? Now, part of it is that bullying was an epidemic. Trafficking was an epidemic. We, we run into epidemics over and over again. But the biggest challenge with epidemics is that we don't know how to negate the fear. We don't know how to take something that is already fearful and push back at it. And that's where I find these things so tricky, because once those frames get into people's heads, they stick. Now, who do they stick for? It's not actually universal. There are, most of us would look at Pizzagate and go, that's just insane. You look at what Dylan Roof was doing, and you're like, that, that makes no sense. You look at the idea that the Earth is flat, and you're like, this is total conspiracy. But part of it is, is that people have destabilized identities. And it's interesting to see what it takes to destabilize somebody's identity and how that also can be used as a wedge. We live in a culture of fear. We created it, and it's tearing us apart. I spent time looking at parental fear. Parental fear feeds into youth fear. Even if that parental fear is about the internet or any other boogeyman, young people start to be afraid. And so there's a cost, especially in many of our privileged communities, of what we've done with that fear. People fear a high level of economic and, and uh, social insecurity. Depending on your environment, there's different versions of that. There's a fear of what it means to have to take on college debt when you leave school. There's a fear of being able to survive in many other communities. Um, all the conversations around jobs sort of magnify this. Um, and we're now in a second generation of this. Right? And so what we end up with is this conversation that is politically fraught, one where we question you know, who's taking away our jobs, who are the problems, and we see the seeds of some hate-oriented agendas. Now, we have a lot of young people who have no opportunity to socialize beyond the internet because they have been very much restricted in their mobility and their ability to socialize at scale. Their access to adults and broader social infrastructure is limited, again, because we are afraid of allowing them to do so. And so they're building these online communities and trying to make sense of their world through that pinhole, through that place where they can actually see something bigger. And depending on how their fears lay down and how they think about an interaction that they may have had in the classroom or ways of who's got what opportunities, you see an opportunity for radicalization. 
So one of the places where this has actually most strategically been occurring has to do with misogyny, right? Why is it that all these women have gotten ahead? It's all, you know, it's the, you know they're putting us down. It's like this is not about equality. This is about suppression of our views. And so you have an amazing environment if you spend time, too much time in gaming environments. You can follow a whole set of rabbit holes that are deep down into the men's rights movement. It's not to say that there's not a lot to be said about what it means to deal with a masculine identity. But we're not actually having a strategic conversation about that. And by the time that they are in their mid to late 20s, you have a narrative of something, people who are neats, not currently in education, employment, or training, taking on that identity, taking on an identity that part of beta male society, and they're not part of alpha male society. And as a result, they, part, they can actually only find meaning by coordination. In fact, many of the people that I refer to who are playing these games take on and hold on to that beta identity. Part of what's beautiful about what they do is the way that they leverage ambiguity. You're not quite sure what's going on. And so you see young people throwing down swastikas and the N-word and all sorts of video games, not realizing that they're part of something bigger. And it's about using those as a moment. Nowhere is this more beautiful than YouTube. When a young person, particularly a teenager, starts to actually create YouTube videos just trying to make sense of their own world, asking questions, there's folks that look to try to pull them into those moments. So my favorite is the race realism component of it, which is, why is it that we're allowed to have black frats and not white frats? Just asking that question in a YouTube comment to a young person. They're like, why is that? Right? And then try doing some of those searches. Right? That's part of these opening pieces. And the goal for folks who are really strategic on it is to do something called opening the Overton window, to increase the range of things that are acceptable in society. And they've been working on this for decades, but this last year has made it reach a high level of visibility. And I was particularly amazed at the moment that CNN actually wrote a live banner that says the alt-right founder questions if Jews are people, as though it is legitimate to even report on that. And then, of course, you think about Charlottesville. Right? Charlottesville is our first large-scale, highly documented Klan rally that we have seen in 40 years. And the reason why is that there was strategic silence amongst the media. Klan rallies never went away. They just weren't publicized. And what's happened in the last year is that journalists feel as though they have to cover them because they are now newsworthy. And the result is, is that they actually recruit. And we have this sort of crazy cycle. All right, we're going to pause with some cats and unicorns and happiness. It's fun when you go down my dark rabbit holes with me, right? Kittens, unicorns, the good parts of the internet. All right. I've probably scared the shit out of you. But my goal in doing so is actually to invite you, to invite you to actually help be part of this puzzle. As I've said over and over again, this is not everybody. This is a small minority which has had unprecedented levels of impact in our political discourse. But I actually think that education and educators are one of the critical paths going forward. Because this is a larger societal puzzle and you're really on the front lines of what those social changes look like. These are youth who are struggling. They're trying to make sense of their world. They're trying to piece it all together. And you are very much in it with them as they're making sense of this. 
Um, you are under tremendous pressure, especially from their parents, to produce results. Um, and anxious and destabilized parents are part of the problem, which means half of your education is not for young people, but parents, right? Because they want well-rounded children, but really they want test scores and they want results, right? And that's that tension. Because a lot of it is helping people realize that the only way through this is to relax, is to actually start engaging with the broader systems to get back to a lot of humanistic results in a world in which we think STEM is the only answer. And I am sure that SEL is a core part of every one of your curricula. But I cannot overemphasize the need that we have to really be pushing on what it means to teach empathy. To really understand worldviews and understand anxieties. And I don't mean it in the progressive, nice way we often do. Because most effort that we've seen has been about classically marginalized populations as we can narrate them. It's been about socioeconomic issues. It's been about race. We actually get very uncomfortable talking about religious difference. We get uncomfortable talking about political ideologies that disturb us. But we need to get that. And nowhere is that more important than in progressive environments. You know, after World War II, the country became obsessed with how do we continue and build connections around the globe in order to be a part of a globalized society. Many of you probably grew up with some form of global pen pals, right? It was, an, it was a service that was done all over the place, and there was just one of many different processes. But how do you actively engage people to really be empathetic for folks that are different than them? Not just about bringing them into your school, but actually making those connections across the country. But I think that's really important to really own and think, think like, what would a field trip to Appalachia look like that would actually be healthy and sustainable for your students? Another thing we have to really deal with is what we're talking about when we talk about critical thinking. Um, critical thinking, you know, there's a bazillion different ways in which I've seen, you know, communities try to, to grapple with this. But part of it is, is that we need to understand how critical thinking can be weaponized into conspiratorial thinking. And that tension is one of the most important for dealing with how critical thinking can serve us, not be used as a tool against us. And the goal isn't to be able to just ask questions. It's not just to be about seeing the broader frame, because you can manipulate both of those. In fact, one of the most popular messages that went around um, in some of these circles in Facebook was just a list of names saying, who really controls the media? And all of those people genuinely were part of the media. And they all just happened to have Jewish last names. Right? That's a beautiful anti-Semitic point of view. How do we get away with it? How do we think through conspiratorial? That's one of the reasons why I focus on humanistic approaches. Right? We have a long history of dealing with myth, dealing with broader frames of people that have actually used really deeply destructive rhetoric at one another throughout our history. How do we bring that forward and recognize that we're actually seeing that kind of weaponization? It's even true for how we talk about what is so-called fake news. Um, my favorite sort of historical example that I love to use is a reminder that when Jefferson and Adams were um, uh, campaigning against one another in the early parts of our country, um, Jefferson actually took out an ad in huge numbers of papers calling Adams a hermaphrodite. Right? This is not new. Right? This kind of abusive, horrible pieces is not new. How do we actually use history to come back to the present. Because I think that's going to be really important. Because you want young people to be able to ask questions, but you also want them to understand where the guardrails are, where people are actually trying to use their curiosity to veer them into different directions. 
The other thing I need your help with is how do we re-network American society? I mentioned about the military being one of our core facets of this. Our educational uh, institutions at the highest order were a really important part of this at one point. Um, but we need to really think about what that looks like. And you are not just a beautiful network of schools, but you are also connected to a more national network. And you're connected to a ton of different communities of people that aren't just in your school, but are part of your broader community. How do you think strategically about how your mission is not simply to educate, but to give people networks. And in some senses, you know this, right? Because this is one of the reasons why parents come to you, come to your schools. You realize you're building cohorts. You're realizing that you're using networks that you have to colleges and other opportunities to build those. How do you think as strategically about the network building process that you're doing as you do about your curricula? And I say this because you're going to think about it just not just in terms of your own school, but in, in part of the societal missions that you actually hold on to. How do you think about it as part of your community? So just as you're asking people to get to know their communities as part of your curricular work, how do you get them to actually build connections to that? And that is extremely important for young people because their opportunities to get to know people outside of their bubble are so limited. And their one real pathway right now is curiosity on the internet. And for some people who are actually in a darker place, that's not a good pathway. So what I want to ask you is, how do you think about the networks that you can build for young people that really open their worldviews, not just the ones in the classroom? For the longest time, we imagined that if we just gave kids access to the internet, they'd be more deeply involved in the world, more educated, more capable of success. We ran you know, 10 years of access campaigns. We just need to get young people access. We need to get broadband. We need all these things out. And then, of course, we realized that like, access alone didn't do a lot. We ended up with a skills gap. Right? And so all of a sudden, we have this conversation about like, how do we get people skilled? How do we let them understand? And we got into a critical thinking conversation about how do they understand the skills and these technologies. And many curricula move towards the skills-based, literacy-based approach. But what I'm arguing is, is that skills and access uh, won't be necessary, won't be helpful until we actually get to the underlying identity pieces, until we actually think about healthy behaviors, about where people are at. And one of the biggest challenges that you as educators have, both blessing and curse, is to help people grapple through their identities. That is a core part of what you do, whether you are teaching science or history, whether you are teaching math. You end up helping people try to understand who they are as part of this broader environment. And that humanistic goal, that goal of asking people to really come to terms with their identity at a critical time when, of course, identities are destabilized, is going to be essential as we think about being able to leverage these technologies in a really positive way. I, for all of the horrors that I'm telling you, I'm actually excited. I'm excited because I have spent so many years tracking these behaviors and watching them and trying to get people to wake up to see what's going on. And it was really hard until about November 9th. These are problems that are rooted in our society. White supremacy, white nationalism, not new, right? The origins of our country. Different kinds of hate mobilization, not new. The fact that they use tools and can coordinate it at scale should indeed worry us. But the most worrisome thing to me is our reaction. Because if we react to this by just being afraid and crawling into a corner, we've done their work for them. This is the moment where we can acknowledge what we're seeing, we can recognize the power of it, and we can actually work to collectively combat it.
Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Nice Ace Now podcast. Production support comes from Andrew Cook. Interview and conference support by Judith Sheridan and Barbara Swanson. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. For additional podcasts as well as information about our conferences and other programming, please visit our website, nysais.org.